0: The passage that was read for us from the Old Testament book of Numbers may not be familiar to to all, but at least the character of Balaam is known to many. And if we do not know the character of Balaam, most of us who have any biblical understanding, would remember the story of a talking donkey. In these days, that may not mean much. In an in a age of animation, in productions such as The Lion King, where animals are talking and acting like human beings, this not, may, may not mean much. But this is a fascinating passage, a passage highly structured, with unusual occurrences, and a passage, very frankly, which raises, it seems, more questions than providing answers. But our intent is to, as we journey through this book of Numbers, to draw some lessons from what we learn in this episode about Balaam in chapter 22 to 24, Of numbers. What we read in chapter 22 is essentially the arrival of Israel in the Transjordan in the territory of Moab. They had already then spent 40 years in the Kadesh region having disobeyed God and not entered the land earlier. Along the way to Moab and the plain of Moab, they had defeated great nations, kingdoms ruled by Sion and Org. And now they have come to the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho, the staging point for entrance into the land of Canaan. Here we meet a prophet named Balaam. Commentators describe him as one of the most enigmatic figures in the Bible. We know much about him, at least from the accounts given here and elsewhere. We know first and foremost that Balaam was one of the most famous non-Israelite prophets of his day that he lived in Pethor of Syria, that is some 400 miles north of Moab. that he lived near the Euphrates. And it is also fascinating to discover that in 1967, there was a tablet found in a place called Debir Allah, in the same region, which actually names Balaam and identifies him as a prophet of great repute that the gods used to communicate their message. We know from the biblical record that this man really lived, and extra biblical records have also confirmed it. Not that the scriptures need confirmation from anything else or anywhere else. As we look then at this passage, and particularly verses 1 to 35, there's a first lesson that we must draw from this account of Balaam and Balak. And the first thing that we ought to consider is that spiritual perception depends wholly upon divine revelation and not human machinations. I want to say it again. Spiritual perception depends completely or wholly upon divine revelation, not human machination. Balaam was a pagan prophet, a prophet nevertheless who seemed familiar with the God of Israel. There are the children of Israel. They have swarmed the territory of Moab. And Balak, who is king of Moab, is frightened by the presence of Israel in his territory, on his land. He's frightened because, and there is good reason for him to be frightened, because as I have mentioned earlier, Israel had already defeated the Amorites. He had defeated nations, or Israel had defeated nations that themselves had defeated more. So if Israel had defeated nations that defeated Moab, then clearly Israel as a military power is perceived to be a greater threat to Moab than even the other nations. It seems that the king of Moab, Balak, does not realize that Israel does not intend to battle with them. It was not God's will that Israel should fight Against more. There is a distant connection of different, different, they are descendants from Lot. Balak decides that he's not going to take the tact of other nations to try to fight against Israel. Instead, he's going to engage the service of a world renowned prophet, a prophet who has a specialization in putting curses on people. Now, you and I live in an age where if somebody says they're going to put a curse on you, we probably laugh and think, really, please go ahead. It's not going to do much to me. But in the ancient Near East and in the ancient world, curses and blessings were considered to be very potent. That was one writer says that curses and blessings, they had inherent power to bring about the desired result in other words they believe that curses and blessings were themselves invested with power to accomplish whatever was intended curses and blessings were given in the names of the gods and it means therefore that the gods acted through these curses or blessings so Balak decides to engage Balaam to curse Israel. What he does is he sends a delegation, a high-power delegation of Moabite leaders and leaders from Midian, who themselves are a neighboring nation. And he sends this delegation to Balaam to tell him to come and to curse them. In verse 6, because I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. It is also of note that Balaam is revealed in this passage to be a prophet for hire. They didn't just go with empty hands saying, come and curse these fellows for us. We're told that they went with the diviner's fee, that they brought with them perhaps gold and silver, in verse 7, to pay. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee, that is the, the money that they were going to pay Balaam to come and to curse Israel. They arrive at Balaam's home. They give him the message. And he tells them to wait the night for an answer. He's going to consult with God. But we notice that that night, that it is not that Balaam finds God, but that God finds Balaam. Because in verse 10 we are told, so then God, rather in verse 9, came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? God sees and understands all things. And so Balaam tells the Lord about the emissaries who had come from Balak. And the Lord gives him a specific command. In verse 12, he says, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And so, Balaam obeys. He returns to the delegation. He says, look, I cannot go with you. He tells them, go back, verse 13 is interesting, he says, go back to your land, for the Lord refuses to give me permission. Did he ask for permission to go and curse? Well, he says, the Lord refused to give me permission to go with you. So the delegation returned to Balak and they tell them the prophet decides he's not going to come and so the king of Moab Balak decides that perhaps the delegation that he sent was not high power enough so he got even more prestigious men and he also sends him back with the knowledge that there is more money to come Notice, they return. And he says, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you. There is a promise now of a lot of money. If you come, I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Meaning, look, money is no issue here. If it is money that is keeping you from coming, just know that if you come, I'm going to give you everything you need. Now, Balaam, he appears as a model prophet, at least as how he appears in the text so far. He, he says, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God. And by the way, because he calls him my God, does not mean that he necessarily believes in God or that he is a follower of Yahweh, but rather that he, he is acting now on behalf of God. But it is not, it's, it's noticeable, I think, that in verse 19, He has already been told by the Lord that he shall not curse Israel because they have been blessed by God. It seems that God was quite clear. What he was to do was quite plain. But you would notice that he says further in verse 19, Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Well, what more does the Lord have to say to him? The Lord, I think, has said to him, No. You should not go, that is, you should not go and curse Israel. And Balaam, therefore, goes to the Lord again. And this time, God permits him to go with the men from Balak, verse 20. But under the condition that he should not speak or do anything except that what the Lord had commanded him to do. And so the next morning, he saddles his donkey, takes his two servants, and depart with the princes of Moab. In verse 22, we are introduced to a difficulty in the text, because it says the Lord was angry, his anger was aroused against Balaam as he went. First major difficulty. Why is the Lord angry with him? It is the Lord who now places himself as an adversary in the way against Balaam. Why is the Lord burning with anger against him? After all, it seems he has done everything that has been demanded of him. It is the Lord who permits him to travel with the emissaries. The text itself does not tell us why the Lord is angry with him, and therefore we need to be careful that we do not speculate too much regarding God's reasons. What we know for sure is that God was displeased. Did he do something along the way that displeased the Lord? We are not sure. But it does suggest, at least from, ex- from looking at other texts, that there may be a reason why the Lord was angry with him. First of all, it appears that although he had been given a command not to curse Israel, that he still entertained the idea that he might yet arrive before Balak and curse Israel. He still entertained ideas of cursing Israel. How, 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 how do we draw this conclusion? Well, there are other texts outside of Numbers that speak of this incident. One of them is Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, and Joshua 24, verse 9 to 10. Let's look then at the Deuteronomy 23, 5 verse. There, Moses is speaking to Israel and recounting their history. And he tells them, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam but the Lord your God turn, turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. It, it seems therefore, it intimates, that Balaam had sought the Lord and had sought permission from God to curse Israel. And God did not listen to him. Joshua 24, 9-10 to makes the same point. But even more revealing regarding Balaam is the apostle Peter in Second Peter chapter 2, 15 and 16, who again comments on this figure, Balaam. Peter is talking about false prophets. And he says, "They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following." The way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved money. He was a prophet for hire. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. It seems to me that the passage here is saying that even though he was on his way, God having commanded him to go, his intentions and motivations were wrong. He was essentially driven, impelled by filthy wages. He was after the money, he was intending to curse Israel. And it was for that reason that a dumb donkey rebuked him and restrained him in his madness. One other passage that we may refer to is Jude, verse 11, where he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and have run greedily in the arrow of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The Lord's anger then, with Balaam, arises because of his motivation, his desire, his greed for reward in seeking to change the mind of God and seeking an opportunity to curse Israel for money. With that in mind, we notice then in verses 22 to 35 this remarkable episode of Balaam's Balaam's encounter with what he thought must have been a crazy behavior by his donkey. As he journeys along, we're told, the angel of the Lord, and we do not have time to unpack this expression, the angel of the Lord, merely to say that we believe that this is a theophany, a revelation of God in person, in physical form in the Old Testament, The angel of the Lord, you see, at times speaks as God himself. As they journey, he's riding his donkey. The angel of the Lord stands ready with a sword in his hand, ready to strike Balaam down. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. The prophet, however, does not see. Thus the donkey turns aside into the field. And Balaam must, Bala must have been thinking what's going on with this donkey? What's gotten into him? Or In fact, what had gotten into her? In fact, the Hebrew suggests that this is a female donkey. And so he beats the donkey and puts her back in the way. The angel of the Lord, a second time, stations himself before Balaam on his donkey and places himself in a narrow passage between Two walls in what ostensibly then is a fenced vineyard. He puts himself in the middle of a passageway between two walls. And the donkey again sees the angel of the Lord and in intending to escape him, moves to one side of the wall and crushes Balaam's feet on the wall. And so he beats The donkey. Again, the angel of the Lord takes position before Balaam. And this time in a place where the donkey cannot turn to the right or to the left. So the donkey crouches down, lies down under him. She goes down. She cannot go backward or forward or left or right. She goes down. And Balaam again is angry and beats the donkey. It is at this point in the narrative, we are told in verse 28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, you have made a fool of me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said no. I know that people have had a field day about how a donkey could ever produce vocal cords to speak. I understand one fellow gave a very, very interesting uh, explanation of how the donkey spoke. He actually said that the donkey was actually brain, and it was a lot of brain. Nobody around could hear, just like, you know, when, when the Lord spoke to Saul of Tarsus, and when the Lord spoke to him, he, the, the people around heard a sound like a thunder, but they didn't understand, and so what was really happening was the donkey was braying. Nobody else could understand, you know, the two servants and the the, the people who came, emissaries who came couldn't understand. But but there was something in Balaam's mind that enabled him to decipher the language of brain. He understood what was being said to him. It is attractive. But the text simply says that the Lord opened the mouth of a donkey and she said to Balaam, she spoke to him. This is a miracle and it is to be accepted as such. It has to be understood that if God is able to make the world and able to make human beings and able to make animals then surely if he chooses to make one of them speak then he's able to do so. In fact this is not the first time we hear in scripture animals have spoken. The serpent when He came into the garden in Genesis 3, said to the woman, has God said? There was a conversation there. Now, I understand that this is seen as a figure of speech and an imagery. I do not believe that's that's the case, but I think it's very hard to see a figure of speech of a donkey speaking and communicating. This is literal, and so we accept it as the word of God. But what is at play here? What is at play? Well, we're going to come to that very shortly. But it is of note then that the donkey rebukes him. And it is this time that the Lord opened the eyes of the prophet and he sees the angel of the Lord in verse 31. He sees him standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. Now listen what the angel of the Lord says to him. Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come to stand to oppose you, because your way is perverse or contrary before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times if she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you. But now, by now, and let her live. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. Here the Lord says, if this donkey had not turned aside, I would kill you. I would choose to make the donkey live and you, I would take you. God would prefer a donkey over the prophet. What this episode demonstrates is not so much the power of God to make an animal speak, but rather that spiritual perception is not so much a matter of training or of technique or of experience But spiritual insight and spiritual perception is the gift of God. Here the narrator emphasizes the spiritual blindness of the greatest of pagan prophets. A man who depends upon magic formulae, who depends upon manipulation and sorcery. I want you to notice that whatever you think of Balaam, Let's be clear that he was no genuine biblical prophet. So look, at, for instance, at 23, verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 23, where he's speaking. He says, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. In other words, none of these things I can do that will cause God to change his mind and to curse Israel. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. So when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go at other times to seek to use sorcery. But he set his face towards the wilderness. You see, this man... Was a man who was involved in sorcery. We don't know what kind of sorcery is involved in. It was a those ancient world was a strange world. People looked, they threw sticks in the air, and when it fall, when it fell to the ground, they would look at the direction and determine the will of God. They would examine the livers of animals. I'm not sure what they could see in them, but these were part of the, the sorcery that they practiced. And Balaam was the one who looked to use sorcery the narrative would have us understand that God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be found out merely by human techniques, by magical formulae, or by manipulation, but God must reveal himself. That God chooses those to whom he reveals himself. And that even a witless, a silly foolish donkey with no claim of spiritual insight nevertheless encounters and sees the supernatural because it is the sovereign will of God and that the one who thinks he truly sees is truly blind you see God can never be manipulated into revealing himself he sovereignly reveals himself to those whom he wills And he's able to use even a stubborn and an unintelligent donkey to rebuke the prophet in his madness. That's my first argument. That simply spiritual perception depends wholly upon divine revelation and not upon human machinations. Secondly, the narrative would also have us conclude that spiritual opposition though it does exist, will not prevail against God and his people. We need to understand that the, the exchange between Balaam the prophet and Balak the king happens outside of the purview of Israel. There they are down in the valley. But there is this exchange going on between Balak and Balaam. Israel does not know that the king of Moab has hired Balaam to curse them. It's all invisible to them. There is something happening behind the scenes but they cannot see. And we notice in chapter 23 how Balak takes Balaam to the high groves where worship is given to Baal and shows them Israel stretched out beneath and tells him that he ought to curse Israel. Balaam demands a sacrifice on each occasion. And we notice that in the first cycle, in the first oracle that he gives, having seen Israel below, having offered sacrifice to God, he goes to God and what does he receive? Not a curse from God, but a blessing is placed in his mouth. And so you see him blessing Israel. You see him pronouncing a blessing upon the people of God. And one of the first things that you see him pronounce is a blessing of descendants in chapter 23, verse 8. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed, he says? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There are people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? He goes to to curse Israel. Instead, God gives him a blessing. It's a blessing of descendants. The dust of Jacob, the offspring of Jacob, cannot be counted. It's the same blessing, the Abrahamic blessing that God pronounced upon Israel. At least in Genesis chapter 12, that now Balaam picks up. God is going to bless Israel with an innumerable descendant. And you will see in the second oracle, where again Balak would have Balaam curse Israel, that instead of cursing Israel, he blesses. And if you were to turn to chapter 23, verse 21, here, is his oracle of blessing. In verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God, the Lord his God is with him, and the sword of a king is among them. What is he promising? He's promising that not only will God bless and has blessed Israel with a descendant, but he has blessed him with protection. His God is with him. The reason that Israel cannot be cursed is because God has not only blessed them, but has stationed himself with them. You see, it is the blessing of protection. In chapter 24, you see another oracle, and it's the, a blessing of fruitfulness. In verse five: How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling, O Israel! Like valleys that stretch out like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his bucket, and his seed shall be in many waters. This is the blessing of fruitfulness. There's another blessing that is seen in another oracle of Balaam in chapter 24, verses 16 to 17. Perhaps the greatest, indeed, the greatest of blessings where Balaam receives another oracle from God. He says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. It's the blessing of a king. He sees in prophetic, through prophetic vision, the coming of a king. He is not near. So he will take a long time to arrive. But his coming is certain. And this king who is coming. Will indeed destroy the warring nations. Those who threaten Israel. Now many believe that this prophecy is fulfilled. Partially at least in the Davidic reign. But many would identify this Prophecy of the coming king, the one who comes, as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob. And this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the prophet in the book of Revelation John the seer refers to Jesus Christ as a star, as the bright morning star. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the church. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. You see, even though evil is working behind the scenes, Seeking to curse the people of God, God would have the prophet bless Israel with a descendant, with divine protection, with divine fruitfulness, and with a divine savior. This is the great blessing that, that indeed Balaam sees. He sees a king. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob that God is going to raise up from among his people a true king who's going to reign with his scepter, who's going to judge the enemies, who's going to indeed deliver his people, is Jesus Christ the Lord. And that was Israel's greatest blessing. My argument is simply that spiritual perception is a gift of God and does not come by human machinations. And secondly, That though there is spiritual opposition against God and his people, it shall never hinder his blessing upon his people. But I want us to consider this narrative of Balaam. And there is a third point that I think that demands our attention. And it is simply this, that spiritual seduction is a real and present danger and God's people must stand on guard. When you read at the end of chapter 24, Numbers, after Balaam had finished his oracles and prophecies, we read that so Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place. And Balak also went his way. When you read that, you may think that's the end of Balaam. He reluctantly must bless Israel even though he wanted the money and he wanted to curse Israel. And having blessed Israel, he goes home. Takes a long wagon journey, 400 miles up north. Well, that's not the end of Balaam. In fact, Balaam is responsible for one of Israel's greatest failures. It occurs in chapter 25 of Numbers, You see, before Balaam leaves to return home, he gives Balak, the king of Moab, a parting gift. What's the parting gift? It's advice about how to defeat Israel. Not militarily, but morally and spiritually. We read in Numbers 25, 1 to 3, Now Israel remained in Achaia grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the the people to sacrifice, to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of pure and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. This is the same episode in which The priest of God runs this man through who brought this Midianite woman into the camp. But it's a situation in which God, because of their idolatry and their immorality, God killed 24,000 Israelites. Now the passage makes no mention of Balaam's complicity in Israel's idolatry and immorality. But it is interesting that later on, Moses himself at another occasion when the army of Israel fights against the Midianites and the commanders of Israel speared Midianite women that Moses rebukes them. And this is what he says in Numbers 31 verse 16. He says to the commanders, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Pure. and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So what you read of in chapter twenty-five, that the Israelites bow down to the Moabite gods and engage in sexual relationship with the Midianite women, this did not. This idea did not come from the mind of Balak. It is Balaam who said to him if you really want to defeat Israel if you really want to mess with them don't go into a battle and fight with them, just invite them to come over just have a party and invite them over and when you do you have them in your hands that's precisely what they did they defeated them Not militarily, but morally. The book of Revelation also attributes the idolatry and immorality to the work of Balaam. Because in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, where the Lord speaks to the church of Pergamum and appears to them as one who holds the two-edged sword, he talks to a people who lived where Satan has his throne, a people who were under great pressure and even experienced martyrdom. But he tells them, I have a few things against you because you have there those who, have, who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The point then is this. Though God's people are blessed, and no plan of God for his people can be thwarted, the people of God who are blessed must always be spiritually vigilant on guard against the seduction of immorality and idolatry. On guard so that we do not displease the God who we love and live carelessly in a fallen and sinful world. My dear friends, I want to make a few parting comments regarding these sections here in the book of Numbers. The story of Balaam is a poignant reminder that we must seek true spiritual perception and understanding from God. Balaam had a reputation to be a seer, but he was blind. He couldn't see. He couldn't see spiritual things. And we live in a day and an age where many claim to be spiritual gurus. You just have to flick flick on the television set and somebody's going to come on giving you advice how to live and how to please God. There are people who are trading in different brands of spirituality using forms and pious looks, special vestments, scholarly credentials. But none of these enable one to know God. God must reveal himself. God must make himself known. God must reveal himself or we can never know him. But it also leads us to consider that it is important to recognize that even though God may reveal himself and speak to people even through aesthetic experiences, none of them prove that one belongs to God. What I'm saying is that God may choose to even reveal himself and do so in a static form but simply the presence of visions or miracles do not prove that one knows God. Saul was among the prophets. Cahypah's prophet prophesied that one must die for the nation but neither of these two knew the Lord. That while it is important to receive spiritual perception and to receive great workings of God. It is more important to be obedient to God. Our Lord Jesus could say in Matthew seven twenty one and following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name, and he's going to say, depart from me. Yes, we must seek spiritual perception, but having spiritual perception alone is not good enough. We must be obedient. We may be given great gifts, great insight, but fundamentally, the reason God gives to his people insight is that they might be more obedient. And secondly, We must recognize that there is great hope in this passage. What's the the moral of the story of Balaam's donkey? It's really that God can use nobody's to do his will. You see, when God chooses to do great things, he often chooses the least of his creatures. God will choose a left-handed Ehud, a timid Gideon. God even chooses a dumb donkey. My friends, I want you to know that there is great hope for you and for me. Because even if we do not possess great intellectual powers, even if we are not great speakers... Even if we have nothing commend to commend us. Because God can use a dumb donkey. I suggest to you that he can use you and can use me. That if God is so pleased, he can even make the stones cry out. There is great news. You, you can't say, Lord, I'm no good. I, I can't be used. God used Balaam's donkey. God can use you. You must therefore make yourself available to him. You must give your gifts and your powers to him. You must ask him to use you and to use you in the way he so chooses. You see, we read in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty seven 27 27-29, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And here it is that no flesh should glory in his presence. What does God choose to use a pagan prophet? What does he choose to use a dumb donkey? that no flesh shall glory in his presence. May God help us then not to look at our strength and our power and our wisdom, but to look at God who is able to use a donkey and to commit ourselves to him and say, God, use me, use me. And thirdly, you must know that you live in a world of opposition, that there are forces working behind the scenes that will do you ill. That we have Satan, the ark enemy, who works behind the scene, who would see us cursed rather than blessed. But God has a pronounced a blessing upon you a blessing of protection, a blessing of spiritual prosperity, a blessing of Jesus Christ, your conqueror and savior. And no power, whether of man or of devil, can ever transmute the blessing of God into a curse. What I'm saying to you is, you are blessed at home, in the city, and out of the city. You are blessed today and you are blessed tomorrow. You are the blessed of God. He has pronounced a blessing upon you because you are his people. And the greatest blessing he has given to you is Jesus Christ. And nothing in this world will ever be able to take that away from you. He has given himself to you. May God help you then that you walk cautiously and carefully. And be aware of the allures and the seduction of the world. That though you are blessed, that you walk in gratitude to God. Keeping watch over your life so that you are not led astray by idolatry, and by immorality. For Jesus' sake.